I'm going to pray uh, that God would help us to really get to grips uh, with this passage, as Sai has done already, but uh, let's go for double bubble in praying to God. Father, thank you for these words, these words in chapter three, as we have them written out in our Bible. These words of Paul, who says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Oh, Lord, please tonight give us a longing like the Apostle Paul had to know Christ, to know the power of your resurrection, to participate in sufferings and become like him more and more until the day you call us home. Please, would you broaden our, our hearts and minds? Would you please continue to transform us? And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Look, Paul's at it again. See verse one. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Have joy in Jesus. I wonder how you found uh, Philippians so far and our theme, unspeakable joy. Perhaps it's been an enormous struggle to find joy at this time. Perhaps the theme every Sunday evening, perhaps it's been, it's made you irritable uh, and and perhaps annoyed you as the many changes in life uh, have overwhelmed. Perhaps it's had a numbing effect. The concept of unspeakable joy seems like a, a distant dream as you plod through the drudge of everyday life. Perhaps it's been a temporary experience, a fleeting passing joy in a moment or two, like sand through the fingers and it's left you disappointed. See, our prayer from the beginning as elders at Town Church going into a series in Philippians, our prayer has been twofold, that the gospel would compel us at Town Church, and if you're listening in live, you're very, very welcome, but our prayer as elders, leaders of the church, has been twofold, that the gospel would compel Town Church to truly rejoice in the Lord in these difficult times. And secondly, that the gospel would convict town church to truly rejoice in the Lord in these unchanging days, that it would compel us and it would convict us. It would encourage us and challenge us to rejoice. To rejoice means to be joyful, to be joyful in all things. And it's worth putting a marker down at this moment because perhaps we've equated the word joy with happy, joyful and happiness. To be joyful, does that mean to be happy? And does God care about our happiness? And the marker here is that, yes, God does. He does care about our happiness for sure. He's the happy God. He's made us in his image. He's created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But, and here's the marker worth putting down, 
see what we've been sold as the in the world by the world as true happiness is very different from Paul's understanding of unspeakable joy. You see, the word happiness, our word that we use quite glibly, you see, that word is a Latin word and it's the word fortuna. And so that became the English word fortune, which simply means when my fortune is good, then my fortuna, my happiness rises. When my fortunes are bad, my happiness drops. And therefore, we've come to understand happiness is solely based on the circumstances of life. Here one moment, gone the next, fleeting and temporary. Settle down to a good book and a nice cup of hot coffee, nice and snug. Favourite playlist in the background brings a smile to your face, a moment of happiness. And then the phone rings. Why is my boss calling me the weekend? That moment of happiness is gone. Or the baby monitor starts vibrating violently and you can hear the screams and it's only been 15 minutes and usually you usually get an hour and a half at midday. Or the laughter from outside turns to shouting and screaming and in run to fiery children who now resemble more like gremlins than they do your children. Those moments of happiness. Coffee, playlist, good book have gone. Don't equate that for life of unspeakable joy that Paul is talking about. Does God care about my happiness? Yes, but Paul is talking here about joy, not as some fleeting feeling to be chased after, like fortunes. He's talking about a permanent status. He's talking about a a deep, heartfelt response to something which is immovable, that only Christians experience. John MacArthur, uh, he, uh, theologian, writer, he's, he's quoted this, and it's coming up on screen. Read it with me. I'll read it slowly, just as we get into Philippians 3. Here he says, joy is a divine gift that transcends all that this world has to offer. Joy is a supernatural excitement we experience in God himself. It involves gladness of heart in the things of God. It results from taking greatest pleasure in Christ and his kingdom above all other things. It is an exalting, an exhilaration in the soul arising from a heart that is filled to overflowing with love for God and his son, Jesus Christ. That, says MacArthur, is joy. And when times are good or of good fortune, you see, it is not easy to distinguish between the happy person and the joyful person. But when times are tough, when disappointments come, when trials raise their heads, when sufferings come, the person who is happy, who is fortuna, becomes sad, frustrated, sometimes angry. The person who is joyful remains joyful, can deal with the disappointment, with a deep-rooted joy in God. And it's a long introduction to say, look at verse 1. This, of course, is the theme that runs through this letter. Paul is at it again. Rejoice 
in the Lord. And Paul backs it up. Look at the end of verse one. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Why? Because it is a safeguard for you. Paul is saying, look, get it. Please get it. If you haven't got it, try rejoicing in the Lord. He says further. It just means finally or moreover or so then. And you see what Paul is saying. Look, look, this isn't something that some Christians might have or should go for. Paul actually commands that <laughs> the whole phrase is, is as Paul puts it, it it's an imperative, it's a, it's a command, it's, it's actually an active imperative voice. He's saying do it, you should be doing it, pursue living a life of joy. Because being joyful is necessary to becoming more like the Lord Jesus. And more than that, rejoicing in the Lord, it honours him. He is most glorified when we are excited, most joyful, most enthusiastic, most satisfied in him. And so before we dive into chapter three, the rest of chapter three, let's stop in verse one. And I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Now, maybe one minute. There's the question. How are you following the command to pursue a life of joy? It's a command. What hinders? What helps? If you've got a phone, just tap a few notes down. If you've got a pencil and pen, the old fashioned way, just tap a few notes down. You don't have to talk to anyone. If you're sharing screens, just answer that for yourself. Go one minute. Okay, verse one signals a new thrust, a new section in his letter to his dear friends. He calls them brothers and sisters. You see there. And he says, I write to safeguard you, to protect you. Now I'm writing chapter three to warn you. Why? Why? What's going on? Well, before we go, verse two, do you know what's going on? You know what's always going to happen when joy is up for grabs? This is what's going to happen. The devil is out to dampen your joy in God. He's going to try and shift your permanent joy into fleeting happiness. We know that John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. And last week we saw that grumbling and arguing can steal, kill and destroy this joy. We've seen that. So now the question that Paul seems to address is this. Where does my confidence come from in order to maintain my joy in Jesus? Where does it come from? And so the safeguard is when he's trying to answer this question, where does my confidence come from in order to maintain my joy in Jesus? Here's the safeguard in verse two. 
look at the language. He's saying, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Did you pick up that language? So far, Paul has been so encouraging, so supportive, using genuinely lovely language for the people in Philippi, for the church in Philippi. But now he uses strong language. And, and it's like the word beware, watch out. It repeats three times. So it's watch out, beware of those dogs, beware those evildoers, beware those mutilators of the flesh. For Paul, this is so serious. So serious. The place where we put our confidence to maintain a joy-filled life in Jesus, it's so serious if there are others that are trying to divert our attention. And so there are those who suggest that being right with Jesus comes through man-made fleshy things, things that we do, things that we don't do. And he calls those who are trying to persuade us to put confidence in such things, he calls them dogs. And you can imagine Paul's not talking about harmless poodles, sausage dogs, chihuahuas. That's about the limit of my dog knowledge. He's talking about mutilators of the flesh. Let me throw in a few more. Rottweilers, perhaps. Pitbull terriers, perhaps. I know there's a stereotype in all of those. Some of those are lovely dogs. If you've got one, I'm sure it's lovely. But I imagine that's the kind of dog that Paul's talking about. And we've got to ask ourselves, who is our equivalent? Who's the dog? Who's the Rottweiler? Who's the pit bull? Who's trying to mutilate us? Who's trying to pull our confidence away from what it should be in to maintain our joy in Jesus? Who is that? Where is that? Perhaps a, a past church. Perhaps a good friend, even now. Perhaps a family member. Perhaps Strong language for strong times. And Paul says, no, no, we are God's real people. We're the ones who've been circumcised, those marked out. Verse three, he says, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. And so there are three things as Paul sets up this new section saying, beware of these men in the church who are saying, put your confidence here for true joy. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. I'm gonna give you three areas, past, present, future, of what it looks like where you can put your confidence in order to maintain your joy in Jesus and grow in your joy in Jesus. So here's the first thing. As we try and answer this question, where does my confidence come from in order to maintain my joy in Jesus? Here's Paul's first answer. It's not in my past. It's not in my past. Jump to verse seven. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Paul calls us to stop, to consider Stop for a moment, consider. Consider what? Well, what I thought was to my profit, I now consider it a loss. It's not on my past credentials. 
And there are men, there are false teachers, dogs within the church who are suggesting that this really matters. And Paul is saying, look back in verses four, five, six, you'll see it. Paul is saying, do you want to go on past credentials? Let me tell you about my myriad of past credentials. Pure Israelite by birth. Perhaps for us, you've been christened. Perhaps you think that that means something in order for you to be right with God, for you to maintain a joy in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, ancestral advantage. Maybe for you, you think, oh, I've always grown up in a decent church. I'm of good stock. Parental benefit. Perhaps for you, mum and dad are Christians. And, and Paul is saying, everything that I thought was to my credit, I now consider a loss. When thinking about a righteous standing before God, when thinking about where my confidence comes from in order to maintain my joy in Jesus. And he goes on to talk about personal credentials, image. Look at his attitude. He was the strictest Pharisee. Perhaps for me. I need to look at myself and think I, I do many good things. I give to the church. I, I serve the church. Surely that's the place to find my right standing before God, to find my joy in Christ to continue. Paul goes on achievement, devout to the cause. Maybe for you, it's solid commitment to church life. Paul goes on, I was a persecutor of the church. I was an activist. Maybe for you, an activist against injustice. And Paul is saying, do you know what? I consider all these things a loss. Do you know he goes one step further? Well, not a hundred times further. He, he says, I consider them garbage. I consider them refuse. I, I consider them actually worse than refuse. I, I consider them excrement. That's the word that he uses. Those things that you, the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh are saying, put your confidence here. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Where does my confidence come from in order to maintain my joy in Jesus? One, it's not in my past. Two, it's faith in the present. It's faith in the present. I read recently that a leading Bible college sent out a survey to those who had gone on to become pastors. And the questionnaire was designed to answer one area uh, along the lines of, of this. What one thing do you wish you had received better instruction in uh, during your time at Bible college? And so you can imagine the students heading on to their pastorates, to the places similar to Archie uh, up in Edinburgh. It's studied, studied church history. It studied original languages, systematic theology, missiology, ecclesiologies, every other theology in the world. And this was the constant answer that came back in the survey. Wish you'd helped me more in understanding how I live the Christian life. How do I live out the Christian life? And look, here's what Paul is saying. A confidence in order to maintain my joy in Christ, 
a confidence in order to live out the Christian life. Look at verse nine, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says this doesn't change. It's the greatest scandal of the universe. Do you want to know how to live? It's your knowledge of what has happened to you at the cross and the great exchange has happened. It's the scandal of the universe. It's my righteous standing is only and solely and uniquely cemented for me on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was him in my place. I now can be confident that I can stand right before a God, says Paul, because of Jesus. I now can be confident that I can maintain and grow in a joy in Christ Jesus because of Jesus, because of what he's done. And he goes on in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, the children in the mornings, every Sunday morning, have been talking about true happiness, which equals joy in our language for them. True happiness, which equals joy. And Paul is saying this, trusting faith that arrives out of a knowledge. I want to know Christ. That greater knowledge of him of what he's done for me, of the great substitution, the great exchange that's happened. He took my sin in exchange for his righteousness. Paul is saying that's what will give me confidence. Not past credentials, but it is a desire to know more. Him, power of his resurrection, the fellowship together to share in sufferings for, for what purpose? Well, to continue in faith, to become more like Jesus and to attain life beyond the grave. As the question, where does my confidence come from in order to maintain my joy in Jesus? It's not in my past. It's faith in the present. And third, it's certain hope in the future. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, says Paul. Not that I've got there. I haven't arrived at my goal, but I press on to take of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Paul says there's a past, present and a future tense in all of this. How can I be confident that my joy in Jesus will maintain or will grow? Well, do you know in the future this is what it looks like? It's to press on. What to? Well, well, Paul says it's to press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold for him. He's saying that my hope in the future is sure and steadfast because he knows what Christ has already started. Do you remember back in chapter one, verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, 
I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, he recognises that it's not quite complete. Salvation has been dealt with for him. The cross has achieved its purpose. The penalty of sin has been dealt with. The power of sin is being dealt with. The presence of sin will be dealt with forever and so verse 14 i press on towards the goal to win the prize for which god has called me heavenwards in christ jesus the language is that of a runner here's paul he's saying i'm confident here here's the language it's of a runner i don't need any picture here's the greatest picture Side Paul in his GB, track not track suit, running suit. Look at him. And Paul, as we're looking at Side Paul, here's what Paul is saying. Picture the runner. Widening his stride. Picture the runner. Pumping his arms. Picture the runner driving everything within, within him forward. Every muscle and sinew. The last thrust of his chest towards the finish line that's the language that Paul uses it's exactly that of a runner and there's the best picture for us side Paul Paul says this I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus our friend how would you describe your race at the moment Slowing up, stumbling, sitting down, you flying, perhaps not even started the Christian race. How does this hope in the Lord Jesus, knowing what he's already attained for you, knowing what he's going to complete in the future, how does this hope compel you to resolutely continue like the runner? What do you need to put in place to kick on? Is God revealing an, an apathetic attitude towards the Christian life at this time? Have you become slack in disciplines that lead to finding joy in Jesus? Have you become half-hearted in your witness to others for him? In sharing your life and the good news of Jesus with others? Is he probing you in areas right now? How will you respond? You see, Paul says that the prize is too great to let slip. It's heaven. To be with him, to be with the one who has won everything for you. And here's how he finishes. Let me read uh, verses 15 to 21. I'm just going to read the verses through to you. In the context of those mutilators, those that will take you away, those things that will take you away from having a joy in Jesus. Here's what Paul says, all of us then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
You see, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Worth running for. Worth using every muscle, every sinew within us to continue to find joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the question remains, where does my confidence come from in order to maintain my joy in Jesus? It is not in my past. It's faith in the present for the, what the Lord Jesus had, has attained for me. And it's certain hope in the future.